Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, Jamil Hassan, the Crypto Hipster, where I bring you entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, executives, amazing people all around the world in crypto and blockchain. And today I have an amazing guest, uh, and his name is really easy to pronounce compared to a lot of people. Uh, his name is Scott Crone. He is the uh, founder of Coda Management Group and One Stop Self Storage, uh, among many other things. Uh, Scott, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad uh, my parents created an easy name for you. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so, um, yeah, let's kick things off. And uh, first question is this What is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? Well, I think that's in the, the the answers in the eye of the beholder in terms of if it's logical. But um, I graduated from college with a history degree, which is not very logical going into architecture. But then I got my master's in architecture and began working for my professor, who was a real estate developer, architect, contractor. And so um, he was working on multifamily. So my master's thesis was a 100 million, 400 unit multifamily development. And then I worked for him for six years while in school and um, after I graduated. And then in 98, I started my own firm, Coded Design Build. And we were in development, design, build, and construction. And we began in single family, then quickly moved into multifamily mixed use until the crash. And, you know, the crash impacted everybody and was trying to force everybody into apartments. And it became a very competitive marketplace within uh, multifamily and apartments. And that's when we began working on self-storage. And that's when we began developing a portfolio of self-storage facilities. And now we do development, design, build, as well as have our own brand, one-stop self-storage. And we manage that. Awesome. So what so what so what exactly does um does one-stop self-storage uh, do and what makes you guys unique in your in your field? Well, there aren't too many storage operators that are also developers that do the design, the build. So we're, we're vertically integrated throughout the entire process. And so we look at it from the point of view as a developer. We look at it from the point of view architecturally. We look at it from a construction point of view, and then we look at it for management. And so when we're assessing and uh, evaluating a property, we, we holistically look at it. And we can know what the costs are associated with each of those endeavors. Great. So I want to get a lay of the land because I haven't interviewed anybody about self-storage and I want to find out a lot more. So um, let me ask you the first question is this. Uh, what are some mind-blowing facts about self-storage investing? Well, one, how resilient it is in recessionary markets. Um, we went back and looked and studied it in terms of the last four major recessions. And, and we are, we're technically in the recession right now. And I know a lot of people don't want to uh, feel that way or argue that way. Um, and that's not the point of this conversation. But, you know, I began looking at the last recession when we had that massive downturn during the pandemic. And in each of those cases, the occupancy level slightly dropped and then increased in every single recessionary market going back to 1979. And so, um, you know, when we look at that, it's a good indicator how some people have deemed it recession proof. I don't think there's anything proven in real estate. I think once you prove something, it will the market will shift on you and the market is a lot more powerful than any one individual and tends to wipe people out when they think they have something that's proof. So that's why I designated it recessionary resistant. And um, 
So that's one thing. The second thing is it's it's very demographically driven. So we can look at a market and know what the supply demand index is and know where we are in relationship to that supply demand index. And so that we, you know, we can avoid markets. If we see that the saturation is too high, then we avoid those markets. And if the saturation is low, then those are markets that we begin focusing in on. Uh, the next thing it's it's a it's a combination of retail and resident um, retail and real estate, and so there's very much a retail component to the business, but ultimately it's evaluated and tied to the real estate. And um, the fourth thing is that um, it serves people in both residential and commercial. And what we've seen during the pandemic is that you know 50% of our tenants, our clients, are companies and the other 50% are individuals. And so it's just not something for people that have too much stuff. It's a it's supply chain. It addresses that. It addresses the fact that we've altered the way in which we use our homes. They're now classrooms. They're now offices. They're now gyms. And people need more space and the cost of housing has only increased. So it's a it's a viable alternative. You mentioned early on, you mentioned the market crash in 2008, right? Yes. So how do you how do you compare that landscape to the landscape of today, where you have like big institutions like BlackRock and others buying up all this residential space? You know, what do you see as the similarities and the differences um, today? A year and a half ago, I presented at Vegas um, when I was winning an award. I was you know, presented with an award for uh, real estate leadership. And I compared it more succinctly to uh, 1979, the recession of 1979, um, due to the fact that the market conditions were most similar to that. Um, 08-09 crash was due to the heavy um, over leveraging and um, the multi layers within the leveraging of the banks in terms of the debentures. Um, which created the crash. I don't think we have that sort of situation now, but we have the massive inflation. We have the massive fuel prices. We have unemployment um, where, you know, I went and compared like 10 different factors comparing today to 1979. And I, I, I presume you were alive in 1979. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah, I was eight. Okay, you were eight. I, I was about 10. So um, there was long gas lines. Right. And you couldn't buy gas on certain days if your license plate wasn't uh, had the right ending. If it had to end in a, a number or a letter, then excuse me, you couldn't buy gas. And I went back and looked at it and it was like the cost of gas adjusted in 1979 was $2.35. In Chicago, we hit close to $7. Unemployment, 6 million people, 79 to 70. The rate of inflation, we're actually exceeding the rate of inflation comparatively. And we looked at the, the GDP, all these factors that we were looking at in the debt yield. We, you know, we had that we inverted on the debt yield. So all those things were very consistent with 1979. And it was based upon, you know, the fiscal policy wasn't aligned with the monetary policy. And that's where I think we got into this situation right now because we were printing so much cash that the only tool that the Fed had was to raise interest rates in order to slow down the economy. Um, you know, we were, you know, in construction and we're seeing um, a, like a furnace, a, a basic furnace go from $10,000 installed to $26,000 installed. 
well, the material didn't raise that much. And everyone says, well, it's material costs, it's supply chain, it's employment, right? Well, I'm sorry, if people were being paid double what they were making, you know, two years ago, they wouldn't be complaining about cost of groceries. They wouldn't be complaining about the cost of gas. So what we're seeing is like this massive inflation that is really reacting to the marketplace because they had the opportunity to it. So the only thing that the Fed could do was raise interest rates in order to pull that back down to slow down the, you know, the spending. That's the only tool that they have in their toolbox. Now, back in 1979, real estate was trading for the mortgages. It wasn't trading for the property. If you had a good mortgage, the mortgage was more valuable because someone could assign the mortgage and you could acquire the house by assigning the mortgage. And they would do wraps and other things. And I think that's the type of uh, environment that we're in right now. The mortgages are more valuable because SVN or the, you know, the Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, it crashed, but its debt to, you know, its debt to value ratio was like 40 50%. It wasn't highly leveraged like it was in 08, 09. It was the, the fact that their bond yield, they weren't making enough money because the interest rate rose so quickly that they were losing money on the bonds and they had to do a capital call and people saw that and then they they just did a run on the bank. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like really the same. I mean, I was at AIG for a dozen years, so you know I saw the credit default swaps and all that. And yeah, I agree it's not the current environment. Um, but you said also the fiscal policy doesn't match the monetary policy, and I agree. And that's why I'm one of the reasons I'm in crypto, right? Um, and so you do self storage investing. You know how can crypto and blockchain help? to get that fiscal monetary policy back in alignment and how it would apply to self-storage investing as well? That's a great question. I think that, you know, when I first began looking at crypto, I didn't understand it because it wasn't tied to a monetary unit, right? It was, you know, I'm like, so let me get this straight. If you mine more coin, then you can have more coin. I'm like, well, isn't that the definition of inflation that you're, you're raising this amount of coin, but then doesn't that devalue the people that were in there first? And that was just my my gross misunderstanding of the product, right? You know, there's more to it than just that simple analysis. So what, what what are the things that we're doing? You know, people have gone into crypto in order to remove themselves from the the value the devaluation of the dollar, right? They're 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 looking for something. And now what's happened in the crypto market is you've seen some market in fluctuation because of disruptions in the marketplace and the value of the of the coin dropping. So I think there's combinations that they can help them both. But the, the biggest thing is that blockchain, I think, is going to replace title companies because what it really is, is it's a contract, right? And once the contract is fulfilled, then the, then the elements of the contract are dispersed. That's exactly what a title company does. So we put into escrow the contract. We put in the contract, the, due, the deposits. We put in the due diligence. And you know the attorneys have their comments. And when all these things occur, then the transaction is finalized. And the monies are dispersed and the contract is preserved forever. And then the only thing it's done is it's broken up securely into different servers and all those sorts of things, right? But I think the technology is there that it's going to eventually replace the title companies. And so what we've been working on is a coin called Store, which is ultimately, you know, um, a blockchain technology to facilitate these transactions. And because of the blockchain, we're then creating the coin and the coin is Store, S-T-O-R. And it's going to be tied to self-storage. So people that want to have a tangible asset that are in crypto, have a, a, you know, a physical asset, we're going to be able to convert 
their other coin into Storecoin and then micro invest or invest into self-storage. On the other side of it is our clients are going to be able to pay via coin as well. So they're going to be able to either pay with coin or they can pay with dollars, but then they can get credits and values in towards their account if they do that. And we're, we're creating a, a network of these um, coin-based, store coin-based facilities across the country because we're in a mastermind of different operators throughout the country. And as a result of this, if someone is moving from one location to the next, they can be able to see if that next facility is on the store token or not. And if they are, then they can just transfer it. You know, they can just transfer the contract. They can transfer their, their account, if you will, rather than having to establish new ones. Interesting. You know, um, the SEC, Gary Gensler, says that all tokens are securities. But it sounds to me like your store coin is a utility token. Right? Um, so I want to find out how... With the utility, like it seems like there's a lot of utility. What, what, what's your what's your what's your take on that? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not. I'm more on the the storage side, and we have the team that is more on the on the the token side. And I think it does classify as a utility versus because it, it's serving a purpose, it's serving a function, um, because it, it is an investment tool, but it is also a product tool. And so I think that is how it was classified in terms of when they were taking it through the regulation process. Got it. Makes sense. Um, so, right now, the the crypto, except for the except for meme coins, the crypto market has been, I say, you know, we're in a bit of a bit of a bear market, right? Um, so I say some things are distressed, really, mm-hmm. like, you know, especially like some of the old exchanges, <laughs> you know, they're really distressed. How do you invest? Like, every one person who said when when you, you have a distressed asset, you run to it, right? That's all I know. How, what are what are distressed assets? How do you invest them, and how do you make money in distressed assets? Well, that's why Blackstone is running into the market right now, right? As Warren Buffett says, you know, you make your money during the recessions as opposed to saving your money during the recessions. Um, so the idea is that you're buying on the low. So if you can buy an asset on the low, then as its value increases, then you know the, the challenge is when you're buying on the high there's only one place where the market can go and the evaluation drops, right? And so you're trying not to buy your properties at the peak, try to buy them in the, in the troughs and then sell them at the peaks. Um, no different than if you're doing an option on a stock, right? You're, you're trying to look for those or puts or calls. You're, you're trying to make sure that you're timed or hedged. <clears throat> and that's where we see the coin being as a way to hedge that economy, right? <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me. So if, if people are, are looking at that market. Now, when we look at distressed, we're looking at properties that are not utilized to their fullest potential. Okay, they can't capitalize on the fullest potential. And the way that we look at that is, what is the potential income of a property? So if if a property is only throwing off, let's just say $100,000, it's gonna be worth X. If it's throwing off a million dollars, it's gonna be worth Y even if they have the same capitalization rate, which is a cap rate. So if you take the, the, the net operating income and divide it by the cap rate, it's gonna come up with the valuation of the property. So a property that is $1,000 or $100,000 and a million dollars, that's 10 times the valuation, even at the same cap rate. 
it's going to be worth 10 times the, 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 the valuation there. So that's the power in that. So what we try to do is we're looking at properties that are not being utilized right now. So we're, we've taken what we call distressed, underperforming commercial buildings that don't have the lease potential anymore because the uses have changed. Like we're seeing big boxes go dark because people aren't buying as much in stores or office buildings or other things along those lines. And if we can convert them into self-storage, then we can take the, the rentable square footage from like, call it $3 a square foot up to $20 a square foot. And so we can increase the valuation of the property just by increasing the NOI. And that's the thing with self-storage, even though it's a, it's a retail business where we're selling lockers, it translates into real estate because of the price per square foot. So I want to find out what trends then, or what macroeconomic trends are you seeing um, where it's not utilized properly, like, um, you know, to get a lay of the land. What micro trends that we're seeing throughout the, the country? Yeah. Is that what? Yeah, macro, macro. Macro? Yeah. Well, the macro trend that we're seeing is that in self-storage, saturation used to be around seven square feet per capita. And then 10% of the economy was utilizing self-storage. Now in some locations like the East Coast, Florida and such, we're seeing saturation rise as high as 13, 13 square feet per capita. So almost double. So there's this tremendous demand for more and more storage, even in oversaturated markets. In during the pandemic, the price per square foot, the rental rates was at the ultimate high. And it's, it's pulled back now. It's dropped about 20%, but it's still higher than where it was before. So we're seeing this larger push on demand and we're seeing increase in rental rates and we're seeing occupancy holding. And that's because of inflation? Change, change in the marketplace, right? It's, it's, it's more, you can, if someone's going to go and buy a bigger house right now, they can't afford as much, right? With interest rates almost double, they just can't afford nearly the size home. So they're being forced to stay in there. And also the demand on apartments, when there's this huge demand on apartments, because we've had this huge, since 08, 09, there's been a, um, the number of housing starts has, has not even reached the same level back to 08, 09. So it dropped dramatically. So we have this huge gap of under, under uh, not enough housing within the marketplace. So the people that were trying to rent to buy houses can't buy houses. So they're forced to stay in it, which is raising the rental rates, right? Which then makes it harder for someone to get an apartment. So they have to get a smaller apartment, which puts bigger need on self-storage. So all these factors on a macro level are impacting the housing market as well as impacting the storage market. And how do we fix that? <laughs> is it new politics? Is it uh, new politicians or what? What is it? Blockchain? What do you? What do you? How do we? How do we get out of that? You know that uh, pattern. Well, I think it's it's like life, right? There's just not one answer, right? I think it's going to be a, a combination of things. Um, you know, I I went back and in, in you know being a history major, you said, is it logical for a history major to be in real estate and 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 self storage? And the answer to that is absolutely not. You know, everyone asked me if I was going to be a, a teacher in a, you know, a college professor. And I was like, I actually ended up doing that, but I was not going to be going back to teach history. You know, so I've taught architecture and I've taught some business classes and things along those lines. But 
I do appreciate history and I do look at history. And what I've seen is that when we've had these, these trends in the, in the presidential, as you said, is it changing politicians? The U.S. voting board, the, you know, govern, the U.S. voting block has changed historically after eight years. Every eight, we give everybody eight years chance to do their job. And after eight years, we change directions. You know, we, we go typically from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat. And the only time we didn't was when we, in 1979, we had Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan won 49 out of 50 states. It was a landslide election, right? And it was basically, you have an ultimatum to change everything. And he did. He changed the monetary and the, and the fiscal policies. And what we're in, and I, people were asking me what, what I predicted was going to happen um, between after the first Trump administration in the election. And I said, historically, he should win. I said, I don't think he will win, though, is if something happens to the economy. If something happens to the economy, historically, we vote people out after four years. That's the only reason we've done it. I mean, you look at all the different scandals that have happened throughout the course of time, and we, we still gave the president four more years to, to prove their worth. Okay, and obviously, after eight years, they have to leave. But we didn't stay. The only time that we stayed within the same party was between Reagan and Bush. Bush won. Right. Every, every, every other time it went from Democrat to Republican to Democrat to Republican, Democrat to Republican. We have the, the switching factor. Right. Which means we're, we're really a centralist type society. You know, we're not too far. We don't want to be too far in the extremes. We'd rather be more centralist. That's my interpretation of it. And so as a result of that, I said, if the economy, something happens to the economy, Trump will lose. Well, the economy did drop significantly. We have a massive pandemic. And granted, he did have a whole bunch of other flaws too. And the and then we switched sides. Now, arguably, we're in a worse economy now than when we were in 08, 09. Because look at where inflation is. Look where look where our, our levers are. The buying power of people is down, right? You know, interest rates have gone from like two or three percent up to seven percent. So it's like the, the world is vastly different now, and it doesn't appear that this administration is changing their policy in order to address it. They're maintaining that policy. And I, I would argue that it's the same sort of pattern that I would argue for, you know, two years ago, I'm going to argue the same thing in two years. If this economy continues, there's going to be a change. So I think that will be part of it. You know, there has to be a change from the fiscal and monetary, monetary policies to align to get to work together as opposed to diametrically opposing. We can't keep printing cash and giving away things and not expect that, you know, not expect to raise the interest rates. I mean, the Fed just can't keep up with it, right? Um, we have to create more incentives for housing, right? And part of that policy that the, the government was talking about was reducing the, you know, one of it is, are we allowing, are we per permitting blockchain to invest? Are we crypto to invest in things? And they're looking to squeeze that. They're looking to tax that, right? Then we also look at, are they looking to take away capital gain taxes, um, 401ks, all these different investment vehicles, which encourage people to invest. If we decrease the reason for people to invest, the economy will slow down. The economy is driven by construction, by housing starts, it's fuel and food. I mean, and, and manufacturing, right? There's there's different segments of these. And if we begin attacking, 
if we're limiting fuel and fuel cost rises, if we limit housing or we're, we're impacting interest rates because people, you know, housing starts, these are two major cornerstones of the economy. You know, where's the economy going to go? It, it can't continue to go up if you're if you're knocking out two of the major pillars of the economy. And I, I'm not saying that politically. I'm just saying that truly as an economist, you know, like looking at it from an economist's point of view. Is that is that fair? It's, it's fair. It's fair. And what you said makes sense, you know, investing in manufacturing and, and creating manufacturing, investing in construction and doing the construction. These are all active investments strategies. Crypto, if you're building a blockchain, then that's an active strategy. But if you're somebody who likes me, who like me investing in the crypto market, then you're passively doing it, right? So what do you see as... But the, the passive, though, it still enhances... Let's say if you're passively investing and you're into something like store, then your passive investment is inher in inherently benefiting the economy because it's contributing to the overall growth, right? I mean, it's no different than, than stock investors, right? So, so I, then, so then what on. do you think are the best uh, passive investments right now? For me, I, I've, I've always appreciated real estate. I mean, the two things that I'm in right now are real estate and crypto. So those are my two my two investments because I, I, I believe in the long-term power of where the technology is going with blockchain. I, I don't think that, I, you know, unlike let's just call it AI, AI scares the crap out of me. Maybe because I watched Terminator too many times, but you know, it, it, I know that we need to embrace it. I know we need to know how to, we need to figure out how to utilize it in, in an appropriate way. And I don't think that we're, having those conversations yet right and i think that was sort of the conversation when crypto first started everyone saw this as a as a um a fad but didn't really see the underlying potential behind it and i think the underlying potential behind it is radically going to change how we do business because of the fact that banking title companies real estate transactions you know contracts all these things can inherently be better utilized under a blockchain um, format yeah, I agree. Total total recall is another one. Um, <laughs> you know, and then one that my friends and I went to the movie theater to see like four times was the classic 1999. I never saw that. That was crazy. Yep. You know, um, but yeah. So all this is really making me think now. Thank you very much. Um, I have another question that I want to shift gears a little bit. And I saw this where you talked about this a little bit. I want to find out, you know, um, and, and it's more of a, on the personal side, right? How to live a full life, you know? Yeah. How do you live a full life? And what, what are some of the things that, that you could do to do that? Well, one of the things that began early in my, you know, when I graduated from college, my roommate and I decided we were going to do one new thing a year. And so, you know, that's led me to, you know, swimming with sharks or climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or, you know, learning how to um, paddleboard or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be expensive things, right? It's just continuously pushing yourself to learn and grow and develop. The other side of it is recognizing that there are different elements or stages of each, of each person's life, each person's day. And I have to block out time for myself in order to clear my head and not be distracted with noise, music, phone, whatever it is, and have that quiet time, that solitude and silence in order to allow 
those thoughts to come up because th those thoughts aren't loud thoughts. Those are very quiet thoughts that get stifled out very easily by other distractions. And that's where the creativity and the juices come from is when you, when you sit quietly and you allow yourself just to relax and think and your mind to, to, to begin, you know, revealing these things that, you know, you can come up with. And so for me, that begins with paddle boarding on Lake Michigan, you know, nine months of the year, um, at, you know, 530 in the morning. It's, you know, I'm out in the middle of the lake. Well, not in the middle of the lake, but I'm out in the lake. There's no cell phones. There's no distractions. And it's just, I can have that time. You know, the other three months, either three to four months, you know, I'm, we're still walking the beach. But there's something about starting the morning with a, with a heart of gratitude and silence. And, you know, one of our good friends, um, when, we, when we met him, he was a self-described congrudging. You know, and he was walking by himself. And he has his dog and we have our dog. And over the course of the couple of years, you know, we've seen this transformation in him where he's like, one day he messed. He's like, we have to get down there right away. It is so beautiful. And he was like running down there. And, you know, before he'd be like, you know, just going through life like that. Now he's actively looking forward to that time, looking forward to those, that period of being on the beach, beginning with gratitude and solitude. No, we still have our negative moments. We still have our down times. We still have those things. But the point is that, you know, we've seen a transformation in our lives. We've seen the transformation in other people's lives when they begin their day. And it doesn't have to be at a beach. It could be a walk around a park. It could be walk around a lake. It could be walk through the forest. You know, wherever it is that you have your time to create that silence and solitude or that alone period of time so that you can allow your mind that, you know, the inner voice to come through and, and Begin so you can begin hearing your inner voice. Gratitude and solitude, being a member of the five AM club, and uh, and what else was the third one? Uh, silence and solitude, and then uh, gratitude was the other one. Yep, got it. And what what can when, what can entrepreneurs do like in the in daily that in the daily life like with the gratitude? How can people like? I'm grateful for what I have left, not just what I have, but what I have left. Right. Um, so how can people begin to gain that sense of, of gratitude? Cause it seems like a lot of people have, don't have that right now. Right. I mean, especially being an entrepreneur, right? Like for every yes you get, you get a thousand no's, right? So it's like, you know, celebrating the wins, right. You know, taking the time, you know, when we accomplish something, we, you know, we stop and say, you know, thank you. You know, like this is exciting. Let's celebrate this because, you know, it's not too often we could go through life and just feel like we're getting pounded by the next wave. Right. You know, sometimes we go out there and, and you know, the waves are six feet and we're trying to surf them and you're just getting hammered by the waves. You know, that that's that can feel like the life of an entrepreneur. But everyone projects it as like surfing like this hundred foot wave and there's like, woo, right. But then, you know, there's times when you wipe out on that hundred foot wave and you're underwater for a very long time. So, you know, when you come to the top, you better be gratitude. <laughs> so we all have those periods of times when we feel like that hundred pound, that hundred foot wave is crashing down on us. Yeah. Yeah. This goes back to something somebody told me back in 2017 when I left the corporate world and became an entrepreneur. It was like the highs are really high and the lows are really low, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So Awesome. Um, well, I really enjoyed talking to you today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I have 
I guess I have one final question. Um, again, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, it's probably an easy one. How can people find out more information about you, about what you do, about Coda, One Stop, any of that? How can they, how can they do that? Well, I appreciate it. If, if people want to learn more about self-storage and they reference this show, we're happy to email them two things. One's a feasibility study that we did on the property. They explain why we chose to invest in that location, but it also explains the overall real estate you know, self-storage market. And we're also giving them a self-storage deal analyzer. So we'll give them those two tools. And, um, you know, the, the best way to get hold of us is at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. That's info at coda, M as in management, G as in group.com. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.